You are listening to the News Project in studio. Brought to you by GNAT TV. Hello, and welcome back to another edition of GNAT TV's In Depth Series. I'm Andrew McKeever, the news director at GNAT TV's News Project. It's a pleasure to have you with us today on Tuesday, July 18th. The quality of our democracy has been uh, an ongoing subject of discussion in recent years, and as our nation has seemed to have drifted uh, into more polarized opposing camps, where positions on ideological issues have seemed to harden. So is the answer, or at least part of the answer, in a more vigorous form of face-to-face, boots-on-the-ground democratic practice? That's one of the points our guest today Susan Clark, and the co-author of a much-admired book on the subject of local grassroots democracy, is uh, making uh, as being one of the keys to strengthening our representative republic. The book is entitled Slow Democracy. It was written in 2012, but still very relevant today, uh, maybe more so. Uh, She wrote it with uh, co-author Woden Teachout, and it's full of insights about the importance of small local democratic engagement. And it's our pleasure to welcome Susan Clark, uh, who's a writer and an educator, and also a, a co-author with Frank Bryan of All Those in Favor, Rediscovering the Secrets of Town Meeting and Community. Uh, welcome, welcome her here to our show today. Uh, she is also a writer and educator, and in her spare time is also the town moderator of Middlesex, Vermont. Susan Clark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Uh, it's my pleasure, and looking for, I've been looking forward to this discussion for uh, quite a while. I think it's going to be very interesting and fascinating. But first, I, I wanted, just wanted to ask you, what, uh, what prompted you and Woden Teachout to uh, co-author this book? What gave you the idea for it? So how did we come up with the idea of slow democracy? Um, it's really built on the slow food. And if you think about the, uh, the, the whole idea of, uh, you know, food, uh, uh, our food systems, you know, eating as an agricultural act, as, as Wendell Berry said, the idea that um, when, you're, uh, when you understand where your food comes from and um, it's, uh, you can see the processes, you know the farmers, um, you are more likely to make wise decisions about the food that you eat and have um, much more responsibility in, in creating the, the support um, that those things, things are needed. Um, and you'll enjoy it more. Um, that idea was so resonant to me. I was actually in the garden when, I, when it popped into my head. I think I was listening to uh, the Omnivore's Dilemma uh, book in my headphones. And, and it was like, this is the work that we do um, in uh, the democratic facilitation um, that, uh, and so, much of the commu- so many of the communities that I work with. Um, it's a very similar metaphor. You know, it's like, oh, slow food, slow democracy. That's what we're talking about. And, uh, I told my husband about it. He, he was he was like, "Oh, great idea! You know, slow democracy. Maybe you can get the website." And then he said, "Maybe while you're at it, you can get uh, painfuldentistry.com as well." Like, <laughs> because he he was just like, "You got to be kidding me! Why do your democracy be more slow?" Um, but hopefully, uh, your listeners who who uh, sympathize with the idea of that. Um, that local connection, that community connection, the importance of uh, social capital and, and uh, reciprocity and trust um, can understand that we're not talking about democracy that's just longer and slower. Um, and we define it pretty rigorously. We're talking about you know more democratic decisions being brought to the local level and that the processes should have uh, three 
key elements. Um, and uh, they are uh, three pieces of jargon for you here. The first one is inclusion. Um, and not simply that um, we, are, we feel represented, but that we actually can uh, be invited to participate in, in decisions. Um, Deliberative is the second key. Um, and that means not just talking. Again, we define it rigorously, um, and there's an entire field now on democratic deliberation. It's a process where you actually gather you know, a full range of information and where you have a rich um, deliberative process to look at the pros and cons um, of both sides. Uh, and we, we can really uh, weigh options and create solutions together. So, uh, I think of uh, a good deliberative process as being not A versus B, but let's co-create C, you know. Um, and then the third one is power. Um, not just divided, but um, a, a, we as uh, community members, um, as, as a process of a citizen, and I use that word advisedly, um, I mean, person who um, is a part of their community. I, I'm not talking about anything to do with ICE or, or anything like that, but um, where we really have, um, uh, can see the connection between my participation um, and uh, and what happens. And that is the oxygen um, of, of, a, of a functioning democracy. So do, do you think uh, a democracy in that form, the, the slow democracy, um, what condition is it in at the moment? Do you feel like we're, despite all the tumult we see occasionally on the national level, or even on the state level, uh, it's basically working well uh, and strong, or at the local level, like at town meetings and, and uh, other forms of uh, you know, community interaction, you know, we've got something to worry about? Well, plenty to worry about, for sure. <laughs> um, I do think that the polls continue to show that um, we have less trust in our national democracy, a little bit more trust in our um, state democracy, and by far the most trust in our local democracy. So I think that that's, um, there's nothing new there, um, although I do think it's probably getting a, a little worse in terms of the digital. Um, along with the trend toward um, both polarization um, we are seeing also just a serious uptick in people's concern about democracy. When we wrote this book in 2012, um, I, I sometimes, you know, had a little trouble convincing people that democracy was anything we had to worry about. They were like, that, that's a thing that we have. It's not a thing that we do. It's, it's a structure and it, it'll be fine. And that's certainly not what I'm finding now. People are very concerned about democracy. Um, and so um, that, at least, um, is a hopeful sign that people want to talk about this more. And slow, the idea of slow, while it can be, you know, the, 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 at first blush, it's like, why would we want things to be slower? Um, it resonates for people when, you know, you start looking at the brain science, um, and we have more and more brain science now. That, uh, there was a study, I think it was in 2006, but it's been replicated many times since, um, where uh, the researchers wired up our, our brains uh, to, to find out what happens when we um, get new information. Um, and in particular, when we get new information that uh, might not jive with our worldview. Um, so they had a group of self-described Republicans and Democrats, you know, subjected to unflattering information about their, uh, their own candidates. And according to their MRIs, 
um, when they got that information in, their brains actually under-processed the information. Um, so the prefrontal cortex, you know, which is responsible for content reasoning, it hardly even fired. Um, and so what we realize now is that we, um, that there's a, this is a physiological reaction that happens to all of us as liberals and conservatives alike. Um, and we can attribute it to our tribal ancestors. Uh, thank you very much, evolution. We, we have this hair trigger reaction um, about who is on my team and, and who isn't. And it, it gave us a survival advantage, you know, back when we had to band together for protection. Um, but um, right now what we have is people who, um, we're seeing, you know, good data, psychological data, Jonathan Haidt, a well-known psychologist, tells us, you know, whether we are attracted to change or if we prefer continuity. Um, qualities um, that are uh, individual to us that quite literally make us more likely to be a liberal or conservative. These aren't just opinions. We're talking about significantly inherited uh, qualities that make up our identities, and we're physiologically wired to uh, to defend them. So, if we're going to live in a world where we actually can take in new information, where we can sit in a room and hear people that we disagree with, we need to learn to frame conversations in ways that don't challenge our identities. Uh, Brian's, uh, brain science tells us that we actually can use our full intellectual capacity better uh, when we don't trigger that us and them and fight or flight response. Um, and so if we can frame issues not as either or, uh, but, um, but really uh, generative, let's think of new ways, third ways, um, uh, that helps us keep our minds open to, to new solutions. So it's way more important now than ever. So how, how do you think we can best adapt uh, our current system and adapt it for the 21st century to, to current, current realities that we have? I mean, one, one thing that comes up frequently in conversations I have around the subject is the role of social media, for instance, which seems to, the perception seems to be it has a fairly unbalanced or somewhat corrosive effect. Uh, people, instead of talking to each other face to face, they'll shoot off a Facebook message or something like that and they don't even know who they're talking to or whatever and and the and the effect is is much harsher um, so given given the 21st century realities that are, the founding fathers in the 1780s had no no clue about how can we adapt that uh, our system and, and and make it workable or better workable uh, today well, you had a wonderful interview, um, I think it was in March, with Amanda Ripley, um, who wrote High Conflict. Um, so glad that you, you brought her to your to your viewers. Um, and if folks haven't seen that, you should go back and watch that interview. She's a really brilliant journalist. And one of the things she said is that when we have high conflict, when we have polarized, um, you know, either or, uh, good, bad, good, evil uh, uh, um, framings, um, she said, curiosity is the first casualty um, of high conflict. Um, and um, so many of uh, today's hot topics, um, you know, whether it's citing alternative energy or school consolidation, immigration, many of them are so complex that uh, they are what analysts call wicked problems. Uh, so science can't give us um, a simple one right answer um, because there are, like I said, competing identities um, and underlying values. And so and at the, at the heart of these tough decisions, this is why this is why social media, and answer your question, is 
so not helpful because it lends itself to tweets and little tiny um, simplistic right or wrong, good and evil answers. Um, and in fact, the, in these tough decisions, there are oftentimes two crucial interdependent variables that seem like opposites, but in fact, that have to coexist. Um, it's the good guys versus the good guys. We, we know that, for example, in, in, uh, in alternative energy center. You know, we all want to um, uh, uh, not have global warming. We want to have alternative energy. And we also value our ridge lines or, uh, you know, and want to save wildlife. So again, good guys versus good guys. Um, the world is actually full of polarities um, and you and I manage them every day. Um, so two good things that seem like they are in conflict and in fact um, have to coexist. Um, a parent, for example, parents have to be firm and they have to be flexible. They have to be both. And if you are a parent, you know that if you're only firm and never flexible, you're the worst parent in the world. Unless you are a parent who's only flexible and never firm, then you're also the worst parent in the world. You have to have both. And a good boss is both, you know, grounded and visionary. You know, organizations have to uh, embrace both uh, continuity and change. I mean, here in Vermont, right? Since what, 1788, we have somehow functioned under the paradoxical motto of freedom and unity. Um, and if we were completely free, we could never be unified. Um, and if we were totally unified, we would not. So how do we how do we do it? The, the, the way that we manage polarities um, and, or, or uh, wicked problems, which is when you have multiple polarities, right? So like a town planner has to consider, you know, one group's interest in wildlife, another one's interest in economic vitality, you know, another one in affordable housing, and then they make a decision that somehow balances those. No single solution is going to please everyone. Um, the key with polarities um, is that they are never solved. They are navigated. They are navigated. Um, and uh, most of our problem-solving models um, that we have in our world uh, focus on two things. Either they focus on expertise, we'll bring in an expert, um, and that person will solve our problem, or on activism. We'll have a big fight, and one side will win, and the other will lose, and that will solve our problem. And with polarities and wicked problems, they are inherently different. They do not respond to technical solutions. They do not respond to advocacy. What they do respond to is slow, trusting, face-to-face -face communication. And you know, there's a wonderful professor in Colorado, Martin Carcassonne. He says that with wicked problems, the solutions begin when we recognize that it's the problem that's wicked and not the people. So the trick is that rather than thinking about solving a wicked problem, we need to think about managing them, naming the competing values, exploring the trade-offs together, and doing that hard work of finding the right balance in each case, and knowing that democracy is an organic process. It's not a machine. You don't just like fix it. It's an organic process, um, and we are going to have to come back again, just like you have to come back to your garden. Uh, it's not done. You're going to have to weed it. You're going to have to fertilize it. You're going to have to, uh, some stuff is going to have to be replanted and you'll have to start again next year. Those are all things that we need to think about when we are uh, dealing with uh, polarities and we can problems. So, uh, 
I've often thought that uh, Vermont's traditional town meeting format is uh, sort of the classic example of uh, what you'd call slow democracy. Uh, everyone comes into the, the school gym or wherever and uh, the moderator summons everyone to order and uh, you know, line by line the, the town budget is uh, analyzed and dissected and whatever other issues uh, might be on the warning uh, get discussed and then people vote on it. Um, but uh, you know, there's, there's, as I'm sure you point out in the book with Frank Bryan that you co-authored, uh, there's been a lot of issues around town meeting uh, as to whether or not it really is a representative democracy experience when a fraction of the town's checklist shows up for the, for the in-person meeting and many, 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 many more go vote by Australian ballot the next day uh, who may not have had the benefit of hearing the discussion uh, about some of the articles on the warning or the town budget or whatever. W what are your thoughts on where town meeting stands at this point? Are we uh, at a place where, hey, it's, it's working pretty well, just like it always has, and no need to tamper with it? Or are we at a point where it needs to be rethought a little bit as being the way local town democracy gets conducted? Such, it's such an important question, and um, it is uh, a question that every town, I think, needs to deal with individually, kind of like the, um, the uh, polarities navigation um, that I talked about. It, it's not going to be the same answer for every town. Um, and, um, but, but oftentimes the way that this is framed is an either-or. It's oftentimes you know, framed as it's going to be town meeting or it's going to be Australian, Australian battle. Um, and we frame it oftentimes with incomplete information about um, whether people have access uh, to it. We assume that if they don't come, it's because they can't, other than that they're not interested. Um, or if they um, if, if they can cast a ballot, then we get uh, a meeting against 100% ballot participation, which is also inaccurate. I, you know, very surprising how about my average town meeting ballot voting uh, in 2019 was uh, just under 20 percent, seven percent, I think it was, and it went up during the pandemic. Um, I think the highest average I saw uh, was 28 percent. And obviously, if we get a lot of ballots, we get better participation. But uh, I think the highest average I saw was 28 percent. So the idea that you know you're having a um, say five or 10 percent of the people at a meeting versus 100 uh, percent uh, in a ballot is, is just wrong. Uh, um, so understanding the dynamics, understanding, for example, Frank Ryan's 30 years of research that asked whether um, uh, there was any systemic bias in who attends town meeting, because there is a ballot box voting. We know in the United States uh, that um, you were much more likely to vote if you were white, if you were you know, uh, advanced education, um, socioeconomic data, all of those things indicate if you're likely to cast a ballot. Um, interestingly, they um, do not uh, show up that way with town meeting participation in, in that 30-year study that Frank Ryan did. Um, and in fact, uh, there was no link between socioeconomic data and uh, a town's likelihood to have participation at town meeting. So those those are surprising data points, I think, um, in, in this um, question about, about town meeting that need to come up when we are looking at um, uh, 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 looking at that question, looking at health town meeting at town. Um, one of the um, tools that I'm using, um, a polarity, 
wonky name, polarity navigation tool, um, that I'm using with Tense to have this conversation is so exciting and so rich. I love having this conversation in this expanded way, uh, rather than just either or, you know, uh, you know, should we have town meeting or should we have Australian ballot? Let's look at um, the, uh, let's look at democratic quantity, uh, the focus on quantity, the focus on getting lots of people involved, um, and democratic quality, uh, the, the qualities that we want in a um, participatory democracy. Um, and let's talk about the benefits of um, focusing on those um, two. And let's talk about what happens uh, uh, if we over rely on, on those. So it's a, a sort of four, a four quadrant uh, uh, discussion where we talk about you know, the benefits of, of democratic quantity. You know, more people will, will uh, participate. There's no public speaking required you know, with, a, with a ballot. You know, it's quick and easy and um, private. Uh, uh, it reduces the risk of, of people feeling intimidated or excluded. I mean, these are really compelling arguments. Um, and so, what if we just, you know, switched entirely to ballot? Uh, uh, well, <laughs> then you get to the overuses um, because you know we lose our ability to end. Compromise. Uh, leaders can't hear the ideas that folks uh, have again. A ballot is just a just a yes or no. You don't get new ideas. Uh, it sort of encourages that simplistic thinking, um, increases the likelihood of uninformed voting. We know this from data on initiative and referendum research. Um, uh, we know that there's a lot of uninformed voting if we don't have a deliberative process attached. Um, and we um, lose that social capital, that um, connection where we hear and learn from first lived experiences um, and maybe the leadership instead of the compliment. So it's like there's benefits, there's overuses. Likewise, with with, uh, with the focusing on quality, you know, we strengthen our democratic skills and, and uh, our trust in the process. And we know that the more involved we are, the more we are likely to have faith in democracy. We all know that's a huge problem right now. People are losing faith in democracy. We, we can see our neighbors as, as whole people and not stereotypes. Um, there's more power uh, because we have the ability to amend, uh, to deliberate. Um, we get the stories from um, our neighbors who aren't necessarily you know, have the master's degree. You know, these are folks who are telling um, We get that from our um, but uh, when you come back to the question of um, you know, ballot voting, so if we see campaigning as a legislature, which it is, um, uh, and it is a, um, it's, it's not just a, a public hearing by any means. Um, this is an empowered um, uh, deliberative process um, that, that does give people um, an embodied feeling of what democracy is. It's not just a feeling, they are the government when they are in the town meeting. That's huge impacts on how we perceive um, our democracy. Um, uh, and we also want to improve um, and recognize uh, how important it is to have lots of people involved and we want to have no barriers to participation. Then we can um, um, pull out from that either or and start talking about both. Yeah. 
what are some ways we can, if we're going to stick with town meeting, if that town decides to stick with town meeting, how can we improve um, access, whether it's through better information, creating a, an operator's manual for the town, as, as, as several towns have done now, um, to uh, uh, make sure that everybody really understands how to participate, um, whether it's um, changing the timing of town meeting. Offering childcare is huge, huge one. Um, do we need to start thinking about um, uh, reimbursing um, uh, people for their participation in our community affairs uh, as needed um, for for travel, for childcare, um, for time? Um, those are you know that, that's that's innovative stuff that's happening some, uh, in in many cities now. Um, so it's something we need to think about. Um, or likewise, if you um, are going to um, give up on your time meeting and move to West Carolina ballot. Think hard about what are the ways that you are going to um, uh, enrich the um, quality uh, of, uh, of participation. Because that informational meeting, uh, it's it's a public hearing. It's going to be very likely poorly attended and it has no power. Um, so, what are some other ways that you're going to ramp up um, and? and uh, there are some ways that um, towns are, are playing with now about maybe having a meeting in January, well before the um, uh, the warning is created. Um, uh, and uh, it's not uh, allowed by statute right now, but we can think about the idea of having those meetings being empowered so that you could amend at that point. They do something like New Hampshire. Um, uh, or um, it, maybe really blowing up that meeting in a really big way, having a meal, having you know uh, kids come and present, uh, having committees uh, uh, have tables there. There, there are ways that a, that a community could um, uh, really supercharge um, uh, the, the the process if they are going to switch to a ballot. Um, that, that that might help. So thinking that way is, I think, um, the future. Um, in, in terms of keeping what's best about our current system and also growing it. And I think we have time for just one final question. Uh, and I just <laughs> wanted to try and ask you about uh, some recent events that on the surface don't seem to have a, a connection uh, between the two. But uh, of course, the big story of the past week has been all the flooding that has taken place around the state. and. Uh, certain towns being hit uh, fairly hard, some of them here in our uh, corner of the state in southwestern Vermont and of course farther north as well. But I guess I just wondered, uh, I, I was thinking about it as watching uh, some of the news reports about it that, uh, you know, uh, the recent flooding sort of pr seems to bring out uh, a certain quality of, you know, the, the neighbor helping neighbor uh, mindset. Um, is that a form of slow democracy in a way? Or is there a connection there? Or am I just and coming up with something that doesn't really exist. No, you're not at all. There's a huge connection. Uh, that many studies have shown that when a community has high participation throughout the year, democratic engagement, um, volunteerism, um, rich social capital, um, they are much more resilient, much more resilient when um, uh, disaster strikes. Um, and if you think, I mean, the term social capital, and, it, and it's measured by trust, and it's measured by volunteerism and engagement. Um, if a town is rich in social capital, think of it as capital. It's a bank that you can go to um, and draw on. And in these moments, 
when we can, when we have rich social capital, this is when we come together and say, okay, we're going to draw on all of the work that we did um, when we it, it, through our slow democracy processes um, that created those bonds um, that are so important to our resiliency now. So this is this is what allows people to trust each other, to loan each other tools. To, uh, pop in uh, and help with mucking out uh, your your basement. Um, uh, not just sit there and wait for FEMA. I mean, that's the last thing that Vermonters do is sit there and wait. We are the government. We know how to be uh, each other's uh, support system, um, and that's because of our rich slow democracy. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, boy, uh, much food for thought, uh, but. Uh, Anyway, again, for those of you who haven't uh, had a chance to read it yet, the book is Slow Democracy, uh, written by Susan Clark and Moden Teachout. Um, and Ms. Clark, thank you very much for making the time for our conversation today. I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope all is well up there in, in Middlesex. Um, so so happy to be here, and it's such a, such a great topic. Um, uh, lots more to explore, as always. Absolutely. Boy, and there's a lot going on. Anyway, thanks again, and thanks to all of you who have been with us today. Hope you found our program interesting, and we'll see you again the next time. Meanwhile, take care. Thank you for listening local. For more local content, visit gnat.tv.